Hello, everyone. My name is Suki Thompson. Welcome to Reset, the podcast, a place for you to get some inspiration and advice to help you live a more fulfilling work life. I do hope that your journey to feel more connected, more inspired, just a bit more energized starts here. Take a moment now with me to reset. This week, I'm talking to Rick Moore, the managing partner of strategy at the Kite Factory. He takes me on a wonderful journey of how he merged two things he really loves to create his unique space in the industry, comedy and media. It's so important to have a creative outlet and Rick found his initially performing comedy. However, soon he found himself without enough hours in the day, holding down a full-time job in both comedy and media. And as a result, he was working over 300 hours a month and was missing out obviously on social occasions with his family and friends. So he had to scale back and he did so by merging his two passions together. Rick identified the similarities and benefits of bringing his comedy experience into the workplace and talks to me about how comedy can support confidence, public speaking, meeting preparation, brainstorming, and how training in comedy can really help you conduct a room in a way that puts everyone at ease. There are really so many benefits and it really highlights to me the importance and value of making time and embracing our need for a creative outlet and the impact it has on our business performance. He also left me with one very important caveat. Don't be a David Brent. It's a really wonderful conversation with a very inspiring man. I really hope you enjoy it. If you do, please click the like button and share it with your colleagues and friends. Rick, hello. It's lovely to see you today. Hello, lovely to see you too. Thanks so much for having me on. Oh, no, it's an absolute pleasure. Now, we sometimes start this podcast by asking people on a scale of one to 10, how energized do you feel today? I'm going in big. I'm going in with a nine today (gasps) for very, very specific reasons. Um, We had our second child 16 weeks ago, uh, and she's called Clara, and she's absolutely adorable. She's the best thing ever, but she has wrecked my life and my sleeping patterns like a wrecking ball. The good news is she slept through from about 11 at night till 9 in the morning the last three nights, so I feel like an absolute king. I feel on top of the world, so I'm going in with a 9. I could even push for a 10 if I really went for it, but yeah, it's it's feeling good at the minute. Thank you. Well, congratulations on how lovely. And I, you know, isn't it bizarre? Before you have children, you never think the sleep's even an issue to discuss. Oh, yeah, I now drill that into my team. <laughs> I think the old dad, the old time going, you really, the people say, oh, I've had a really lazy weekend. Embrace it, love it. Because I think you can, as long as you don't look back on periods of your life and regret wasting things, I think that's an important thing to live your life by. So it's just making the most of it. And I'm really happy. So she's our second. We've got a um, soon-to-be five-year-old. And Milo and we got Clara, who's 16 weeks. So um, it's actually this time the hardest thing is the two of them together. Yeah. And um, yeah, it's 
how people have twins, I have no idea. But uh, yeah, it's it's an interesting an interesting challenge. But interesting to be back there at the start again. Lovely, and isn't it? You know, we're not meant to be talking about this, but isn't it amazing? You can have one child and then have another one and love them just as much. Yeah, well, I'd say the first one was really interesting because we had Milo, and I remember physically almost pressing my shoulder blades back into the wall in the delivery room, going, "I'm not ready. I don't know how I'm going to do this. I don't know. This is this is a huge thing." And Everybody says, oh, you, it's a love light. You'll never, never know. And the first day, I really worried going, I don't, do I feel it? Do I not feel What's going on? But then it just sort of bubbles up over time. And you love them incredibly, and it, it's huge. And then, like you say, suddenly you go, wow, there's two lanes of just absolute love here. This is, this is, this is great. But no, it's, it's really special, and I'm, I'm very grateful for where we are. So it's nice. So yeah, I'm nine, very happily nine this week also it's half term week and i've come into the office to record this podcast so i've got a day off so there's another reason <laughs> why I'm that's lovely well thank you for using half term week to do this conversation yeah. um one of the one of the seven needs that we have is having a creative outlet um and as well as having a brilliant career and you're a strategist and part of the company and we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about Kirk factory as well you have been and are and still work in um, comedy. You've been a stand-up comic. So um, lots of people, when we talk about having a creative outlet, often say they don't have enough time, they don't know what to be inspired by doing. So I really wanted to do this podcast and talk to you because to do that alongside a really challenging job as well, um, and just to even get to that place, um, I think it's fascinating. So can we start with that? How did you get into thinking, oh, stand-up comedy? Stand-up stand comedy. Well, it all comes from I am cripplingly shy. It's a really hard quality, and it's it's weird. People who knew me growing up go, yeah, of course you were. People who know me now go, no, you're not. But that's yeah. one of the plus points of the stand-up is I've trained myself that I can cope in social situations this is the nicest way of putting it um but yeah i was cripplingly shy and also the weird thing that also takes from getting your head around is i i'm obviously a very bald man uh, but when i was a kid i had these big sort of hugh grant in four weddings floppy curtains and they just used to <laughs> sort of hide my face and i used to mumble a lot um i used to enjoy being my own little world my own little imagination and um i love movies and i love films and i love acting i loved all that side of it but i never got involved in it i was just head down mumble my own thoughts um and my dad loved comedy so i was always brought up just watching comedy love love that side of things um in fact that's where rick my spelling of rick is r-i-k and the reason comes from two things it comes from wrestling and comedy so when i was about 13 my dad took me to see um bottom live in blackpool with rick mail and edmondson and i thought it was the single funniest thing i'd ever seen him like properly falling out of my chair my lungs hurting laughing it was brilliant uh, and then there was a guy called Ric Flair who was a bad guy in wrestling, and he was the worst. So it was R.I.K. rather than R.I.C. was the way to go. Um, so I love. I just love. Were you born R.I.K.? No, I'm rich. I'm a Richard. I just, I just. It was those two and playing a lot of video games where you can only put three letters into the scoreboard. So that's where Rick comes from. Little did I know it would be a spelling nightmare for the rest of my adult life. But there you go. Um, so I'd always had this interest in it. And then uh, when I was in sixth form, I had an opportunity to do a play. We did a play at school, um, Winter's Tale by Shakespeare. And I was, um, there was Farmer and his son. And, it was, uh, and we had this role. And I 
couldn't really get my hand around the Shakespeare in English, but we realized they were the comedy roles. And we figured if we could make it slightly slapstick and play it slightly large, that would work really well. And the three nights we did that play, it was just brilliant. Like the room laughed, we're properly laughing and really going for it. And that's, uh, I think the biggest thing for me is just the buzz of having a room full of people laughing and feeling it. It's just, it's intoxicating and it's thoroughly addictive. Yeah. Um, it's skydiving for, for people who want a bit more safety, I think, in that, in that regard. Um, so so that was brilliant. But then it was the reaction. Like I had a teacher come in to stop a class the week after and go, I've taught you for five years. You don't say a word. You mumble into your hair. What the hell did I just see? What was Who was that person? Even my mum said it. And it was like, oh, I've, I've sort of challenged people's thoughts. That's really interesting. So got to uni and there was a comedy society and they put on reviews and sketch shows. And I'd come up with this sort of, I was really into, like, uh, I'd really got into comedy. Like, I, I fell in love with um, Lee Evans. His Breakthrough Hour was a Perrier award-winning show and they'd shown it on Channel 4 and I'd recorded it late night. And I showed some friends and just the fact I had this comedy was like cool currency. And so I just started avidly watching all this stand-up. So when I got to this this comedy society, I did a monologue. So it wasn't really stand-up. It was more like a character monologue. Right. But that that was terrifying to get up there. But again, you got the laughs. And this time it wasn't, you know, I was doing somebody else's scripts. I'd done something I'd written and, and people were laughing at it. Oh, that felt really, really good. And then I started doing that a bit more. And then a friend dared me and said, right, comedy society is all good, but you're 20 people in little rooms in the students' union. There's a proper comedy night, uh, an Avalon, who one of the big comedy management companies put on student gigs. And there'd be a couple of big name comics every other Saturday in the union in front of 300, 400 people. There's a five minute spot and the five minute spots, the open spots as they're called, would often get booed off because they'd be people who'd come yeah, in. Yeah, well, you know, I've been there, be part yeah. of that booing thing, which I always find yeah. terrific. Because people, because people don't, they see the open spots and it, it we'll talk about this notion of status and, and being up there and a right to be up there. And I think the open spot slightly undermines it with the mere description of open spot, but they generally come on and do a lot of quite broad, almost old school, most working men's club type comedy, which in a student's union just didn't play very well. And they generally get booed off after three minutes. So this person said, right, if you really think you're good, you've got to go and do that. And I went up and rather than the five minutes, I ended up being up there for seven and left to a hero's, it was proper, but, but that's just like you feel so good after that. You honestly, you just spend the rest of your life chasing that feeling of feeling good. So that that's kind of how I got into it. And but I'm, I'm fascinated because I think I, I went to drama school mm. and I was very average. <laughs> that's a very honest appraisal. Awful. I you know I grew up in Cornwall. I was really good in Cornwall, and then I went up to actually to Leeds, and I was so average it was awful. And the end of our third year, we had to do this stand-up piece. And, I, you know, I was fine in as much as I wasn't really particularly scared about anything. But that slot was, I mean, for me, horrific. And I've always really wish I was funny. And there's not so many females that are funny. You know, people like Catherine Jacobs in our industry are hugely funny. And I love that. Oh, yeah. oh she's love, amazing. She's amazing. Too. I love laughing. Literally, it's my favourite thing to do. But I'm just not funny. So... How, when you're so kind of introverted, and that, how do you then push yourself to even stand in front of those people? So I get the oh yes, people love it, and you know I love still doing my oyster catchers club, speaking to other people. Yeah. I love being live, but how do you do that? 
Well, let's just unpack a couple of things there. You saying you're average, like I say, it's a very honest appraisal, but I wouldn't say it because I've been to some of those oyster catch. The, the one that really sticks out in my mind, I went to Oyster Catchers Fight Club in the vinyl factory. Oh, my factory. God, yeah, that was fun, wasn't it? Yeah, but you were really, I, I, you know, you were so commanding and really, because you're at the toughest spot, you're opening it. And I know it's you've got status because it's your event, you're hosting it, and everybody, you know, we're here because of you. But... Yeah, you absolutely had it. Now you tell me you got the drama back and you go, that came through perfectly. But no, that was a that was a, a great example. I think that's where comedy can come into the industry, where you have moments like that where you need to cut through and be engaging. And it's it's not about punchline, 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 punchline. It's be amusing, be memorable, but um, but take people along on the journey. But no, that's those clubs are amazing. I, I can see you, you clearly enjoyed being up there. That's half of it. Exactly. And I love that. And I so I decided because I'm not funny. I love telling stories. Mm. So my poor family, you know, everyone knows about Sam and Jazz because I talk about them a lot. I talk about, you know, things because for me, I kind of go, well, I can't really make people laugh, but I can tell a story or link it back into something. So how do you go to the so I get the presence on the stage and I get the bit. How do you go? Oh, that's what I'm going to say, because that's funny so this is pulling the curtain back slightly all comedians are different but i would say the vast majority have a pretty good idea of what they're going to say have a, a what you would call a set plan set i mean how you generally go about starting comedy is you get booked for these open spots or these these sort of start to try out gigs and you get maybe five minutes trusted with five minutes of time yeah. and if you do that well people go oh you're good I'll book you again. And they'll book you again. They'll maybe try on 10 minutes and then 10 minutes becomes 15 minutes. And then what's classed as a club set is 20 minutes. If you've got a good 20 minutes, that's that's solid, right? And then as you accumulate material, you want to build yourself up to a point where you might go and do a comedy festival, like um, Leicester Comedy Festival is on at the minute, um, Edinburgh Comedy Festival, where you'll do 55 minutes to an hour of material. Now, there's different ways of doing that. You could do three acts in an hour doing 15 minutes each. You know, with with a bit of link, that that's an hour. Or you have somebody who'll craft an hour. Now that hour is very different because it's your hour. People have come to see you, and you can tell more of a story. You can take more time over that hour. You don't have that luxury in a club where um, you need to prove you're funny and engage that crowd pretty quickly. So it's a very different. You can probably take a few more liberties with an hour yeah. in, in in a sort of fringe type show. You probably have to be a bit more punchline. And, and more dynamic probably in a club setting um but, but so you so going back to the point most comics will have that sort of set they work within but then the good comics and me when i was gigging really hard i mean to put it in uh, so the last really big year so I was sort of doing the two in tandem i was doing the, the working in media and working in comedy in tandem yeah. um I was doing 160 gigs a year on top of the day. So it's basically four mm-hmm. nights a week. So you just don't have a social life. That was part of the reason I, I, I decided to, to scale it back. Because you, you just, any wedding, birthday, family event, you are not going to. Because you're mm-hmm. trying to get to venues and trying to do the gigs. But I could still keep a good rate of work going and still do that. So if you think, if you're gigging that frequently, mm-hmm. you know you're set inside out. And it, it almost got to a point where, you can almost stand apart from yourself 
this is going to sound strange, but I'll try to explain it. You know your set so well that you can be giving it and you're almost on an autopilot giving it. So you can stand apart from yourself and take in what's happening in the room and you can move your set in and around what's happening in the room and also how people react. Um, I'm a huge fan of Rory Sutherland and Rory Sutherland did this lecture on success and it's one of the best descriptions of it. If you want to be a success, take two random things and bash them together and own that niche. And if you can own that niche, you can be a success. And the example he gives is, imagine you're a male tennis player and you're on the, um, the pro tour and to be the best, you've got to be better than Nadal, Federer, Djokovic, Murray, all these amazing, you know, once in a generational talents. That's a pretty big, big ass to be better yeah, than. Yeah. But say you're an amazing chess player as well. You could be the best test, the best male pro tennis chess player, and you could be unbeatable because you bash these two random things together. Um, and one of the things is to look for the gaps and look for what people don't like. And one of the things I noticed pretty early on doing the comedy was people hate comparing, hate the emceeing for a number of reasons. Mm-hmm. Because if you have a set and you trust your set and you know where your set works, you can't do your set if you're comparing. So you have to step away from it. That's scary. That, that scares some people who could be confident enough to do a set but wouldn't go and do it. You have to think on your feet quickly. You have to engage the audience and bring them along and make them feel part of it. You also have to check your ego to a degree because you have to recognize you can't do your set. You can't get your jokes out how you want to. And you may not get to tell the joke you really want to tell that shows you're hilarious that given night, but that's not important. What's important is it's a great show. And I think MC being short master ceremony, it, it's literally that description. You are in charge. You take the room. So I noticed that people didn't like doing it. So I decided, right, I'll start doing that because if I do that, I can climb the rungs faster because there's probably less people who want to compare. And the comics I, I came up really loving you know, people like Ross Noble, Darrow Brian, Daniel Kitson, acts like that. They were just, they were compass. They could be so quick. They could react to something. They could just move on, on something happening in the room. Like I, I saw a Darrow Brian special where somebody had not even heckled. They'd just given a comment. They'd sort of reacted and they said, it said a comment. And he took that one sentence and it suddenly became a, a whole 10 minute flight of fancy. And that's beautiful watching somebody's brain work like that. Yeah. I think, there's something about even if you've got sort of 90 percent of what you're going to say planned out and it's the same thing you'd say every time if you can just add that 10 percent of color that makes people go oh what i'm listening to that's unique i've never heard that but that, that clearly is only happening for here because it's referencing that person there who clearly isn't a plant this has to be here people appreciate that being in the moment there's that electricity of it's in the moment it's happening here but that's that's the joy of live anything, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, it's Comedy, amazing. Live theatre. Yeah. You know, I think it's why festivals do so well, live music, everything, anything where the artist kind of just has a conversation with the audience, does something that yeah. feels unique for the audience. We feel special being there. And I guess for the artist, that's a very special moment, isn't it? Yeah. And it's it's beautiful. I used to love comparing. I used to particularly love it. I used to do a lot of Friday and Saturday nights. So to, for the listeners, I would be, imagine a lot of the stuff I did was around the circuit around the West End in London. So it would generally be upstairs rooms in pubs. And you might have somewhere between 50 to 150 people in there and uh, it'd just be fun to go and find out what's going on. So you've, reading the room, it's important for what we do in business, but it's yeah, it's yeah. it's crucial for this as well. Like, what's the makeup of the room? What mood are they in? What are you going to get? What do you got to deal with? And then that sort of tells you how, you, how your night's going to be, what's going to happen. But I would love to see couples on a date, like early on in a relationship. And like, 
I never want to be like there are some comics who because of their all comics have what's called the voice so it's your lens it's your view of the world and and, and every comic defines how they view the world now they out they go and off they do um so jack d you would say his stand-up persona it's moved a bit because he's had such a long career and he's come out himself but yeah, when he started out, his, miserable <laughs> yeah the complete misanthropic dour hate the world type person yeah. But that's his lens. Everything happens through that lens. Um, Eddie Izzard, when she started out, was action transvestite. And what yeah. she did was, it, it's, it's yes, living that dream. And she takes you off on that fly fancy, and it, it's brilliant. So they're, they're two really simple examples of that lens. Yeah. I used to call mine Happy Jack D. I liked his okay. quickness. So, so the, the, when I was getting into comedy, he used to have a Channel 4 special. And the opening credits were the car would pull up, he'd get out in his pristine, immaculate suit, he'd give a nod to the doorman, so already he's an insider, he knows me. He's down the steps into the club, go up onto the night, spotlight comes on, one of those old school sort of open cage mic type things, and he's just straight in. And that to me is that there's the slickness, the old school showbiz yes. sort of point. Yes. yes. That side of it I used to love. Mm. But I wanted to be somebody who after the show you go, Oh, I could have a pint with him. He seems all right. And so, not the dour side, but sort of happy, just enjoying yeah. the world. So, yeah, if I see a small, it, quick bit, yeah, yeah, they yeah. come along with. And so, you, um, if I saw a couple on a date, just have a chat. How's it going? You're right. Do you like each other? And if it's going semi well, pick one of the two of them up, make it special, make them feel part of something. But occasionally, it'd be going disastrously, and they'd start confiding in you live in front of everybody. I remember one. It was a. Um, I asked them, and, and and he's like, "Yes, all right." <laughs> and she said, um, "Hmm, yeah, I wouldn't even go as far as all right." And suddenly, got, "Oh, okay, let's chat to you two if you're not if you don't mind, because I'm not going to make this date worse by any means because it's already in a pretty bad place." But let's chat. But then you're sort of feeding back to the rest of the room. You're playing the rest of the crowd, and if you just make people, I always had it. So people at the time would probably pay about a tenner to come to one of those gigs, and because they're not because they're in pubs certain pubs built up certain reputations people go oh i hear this pub they've got a really good show i'll go and see this one if they're a bit comedy literate you'd know a good pub to go to other people have been conjoled by the flyers to come in and they'll be sat you see them sat there really nervous going oh i hope i'm not wasting my money so i always say my objective is i want you to feel that every single pound you spent was worthwhile and you had a brilliant night because you know people haven't got loads of money people you know don't have loads of free time if you've got a night out in the west end it's our obligation to entertain you and send you home happy so uh yeah but i loved yeah i always loved chatting to the crowd that was always good fun because other people were scared of that it made life easy yeah 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 i can completely understand that and how how lovely what an amazing insight so You've worked in media for a lot of your career. Yeah. Um, how does it help? How has it helped you in, you know, because media, for those people, I mean, a lot of people listen to this, kind of understand the media industry, but but those don't. It's still a tough environment. You know, the Kite Factory, you're very kind of innovative media company now. Mm. You have as before, you know, quite traditional media companies as well. Um, but it's a tough old environment um, a lot of it you're on the kind of strategy side but it's you know it's 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 the tougher side of the industry I would say how's it helped you in that um well it's it's helped in ways I couldn't have ever thought of doing when I started doing it it was two things it was getting me out of that nervousness and I liked yeah. the the confidence it gave me I loved the feeling of the laughter also as a byproduct I hadn't really factored in being so shy chatting anybody up was a nightmare 
However, if I've been on stage and been funny for 20 minutes, it's interesting that people will want to come and talk to you. And you go, well, this just makes life easy. That's that's a, a very happy byproduct. Um, Is that how you met your wife? No, God, no. No, no. I, I, had, I had decades of disaster that fueled many comedy sets before I met my wife. <laughs> um, that's a whole other thing, how I met my wife. We'll come, we'll come to that probably later. Okay. Um, I mean, we've definitely got to do that now. Uh, no, I, oh, I'm a lucky man. Uh, I still can't believe I'm, I'm married to somebody as cool as my wife is, but there you go. Um, so, yeah, so that was, so back to the question, how did, how did comedy help uh, me in advertising? It does a number of things. It, it helped me, when you're writing jokes, you're looking for a topic and you're looking to take a different spin on it. That's a lot of what comedy is, is you, you set up a premise that your brain's saying, oh, it's going to go here. And it's that sudden turn to go somewhere else that sparks the laugh. And there's something in that as the strategist that if you're looking for insights and you're looking for things going on, um, it's it, that sort of comedic mind is a way to look at things in a different way, think laterally, try and find a different angle, a different insight, or a different way of playing that insight back to people. That's very good. My comedy partner, he's a CSO. He's also in advertising. He's a CSO, a, a really cool little agency called Troublemaker. I say little, that's side effects. They're really good, and they've got some really big-name clients. Um, he actually trains his staff to be stand-ups as a way of training them to look for insights. I use I use comedy at work as a way of training people to talk because I think that's the other side of it. I think there's the insight I'm covering. There's the other side, which is there's so much about how you turn up to deliver a stand-up set, which you can use to give people confidence of how they stand up and present and convey their ideas. And that's a huge part of the strategist's job. I've got to, myself, my team, we've got to turn up and we've got to get people listening and get people listening to what we're talking about, get the point across, present the situation and present the resolution, which there's a lot of similarities between setting up a joke, you know, like you say, storytelling. Storytelling is a huge part. Oh, exactly. I was going to say, we had Gary Lace a few. Yeah. Well, he was. So that was, does that, did that resonate with you? It really does. In the Gary Lace interview, he made a really interesting point. He was talking about, um, the different emotions that story to you. He was just after he talked about the Pixar, the different emotions, but the one he said was surprise. Yeah. Surprise was the emotion. And I think that's where comedy and media link up because how do you take insight? How do you take that, that raw material and lead it to somewhere surprising that make people, oh, that's different. I hadn't thought of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and that I think has really helped. The speed, the quickness of thinking, thinking on your feet, that has, has really helped me. You know, if you say, say the classic pitch scenario, you get to the end, you get to Q&As. I know I'm one of the best people in the room at that stage because I can think so fast on my feet and I can I can deal with things. And I, I it's the comedy training that I think has got my brain to that point where I can do that. Um, there's the confidence. It's shocking how many people are terrified of public speaking. I mean, it's completely understandable. I'm very sympathetic to it. But the more senior you get, you just assume everybody's comfortable with it because you see them talking so many times. But then you see behind the curtain that these people are terrified of talking. So it really helped me. People knew they could put me up. I think the scariest is you talked about, I used to work at Havas. Havas would do all company meetings, given the size of that place. They'd hire out cinema screens. They did one at the, I think it's the View at the O2 Center. Mm-hmm. And one time we did the Odeon. In fact, a couple of times we did the Odeon um, Leicester Square. So you've got, what, 1,500 people in there, 8.30 in the morning. They're stone cold sober. And generally, it'd be, right, Rick, you've got to go on. You've got to go make them laugh. You've got to, you've got to lie them down. And that's... That's quite... Well, it's a tricky thing. It's a tricky thing. I always say the scariest thing is if you say to somebody, oh, I do comedy, and they go, all right, and tell us a joke. Go yeah. on, show me you're funny. Yeah. That's horrid because you've got nothing 
there's nothing that's changed. You're just still that person or that colleague or that random they just met. And they're like, and, and there's no context. The benefit is if you come out on a stage and you've got a microphone, until you disprove it, you have a reason for being there. That's why I don't like the phrase open spot because open spot already chips away at that status before you even have a chance to say a word. But yeah. it's how you go out, the, the body language you use, what all the stuff you do before you open your word, how you dress, how you maneuver, how you, how you act on the stage. You give yourself status and a reason for being there. And then if you start telling jokes from that position rather than I'm just here in the street telling you funny, it's up there you're starting from a much better place and you're in the right context. So it used to be if anybody wanted to come and see me do stand-up, I wouldn't do stand-up in the office. I'd do stand-up. You had to come and either see me at a club or yeah. we would create an event at the office with a space, with a stage, because then you're in the right setting. I think that's that's really important. So, um, yeah, give, even though it was 8.30 in the morning, 1,500 people, Stone Cold Sober, you're still getting a PA system in a cinema, a microphone and a stage. And you've you've got a chance to, again, you can play into that. I always get it. You know, when you go to those, um, I'm going to pick on the Hamyard Hotel. I think Hamyard Hotel is lovely, but there'll be so many industry events at Hamyard Hotel. Do you get the thing? You turn up, you give them your name, you give you a little lanyard clip on, and you go through, and there's always a breakfast, because generally a breakfast meeting. So you get an orange juice, and you get two of those little croissants on a plate. And it's like, at that point, you go, I really wish I had a third hand. Two hands are never enough for that situation. You're around a great people, sort your bag out with your lanyard, with your food. And it just, it's, it's not enough going on. And you look around the room and you see everybody who's turned up on their own going, oh, I wish my workmates were here. Oh, I'm on my own. And it's just, you just feel, oh, I hate this. I hate that. And you yeah. just recognize yeah. other people. And you're just like, right, we're all feeling the same. If you can just break the ice. And a lot of that's what, what being an MC is. You're just breaking the ice in the awkwardness in a room to just go, it's all going to be okay, you know? It's going to be all right. And if you can use that to help yourself out of your own nervousness and then bring other people in, I think that's another thing from comedy is bringing people in. It's That used to be the trick of emceeing. If I can make the whole room feel part of this community, this collective for this two hours, we're going to do, give you a show and I will guide you through it and you can trust me that uh, you, every pound you've spent, you'll have a great night. It's great. It's the same thing in media. If, if we're doing a presentation, seminar, meeting, new business pitch, whatever it is, I want to make whoever the audience for that is feel like, okay, I'm part of something and yeah. I belong and I'm engaged. Yeah. And that's, so those are all the things which starting out this stand up, I never realized any of those things were going to be important. But yes. as I've gone through yeah. and I look back now, it's go, wow, that's handy that I had yeah. that locker. It's really good. I completely understand. It's funny, isn't it? Because there's only, a f I mean, now there's quite a lot of people who have done drama that have come into our industry. But when I started, Helen Calcroft, was one of the only other people who went to, did drama degree or went to drama school and then came into advertising. Um, and I remember, you know, at the time, and then I went on and did a postgrad in marketing and then a, an MBA because I kind of didn't feel academic enough. I felt like I'd just done a drama degree. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. And so, but like you say, I use it all the time. What I hadn't thought about was that kind of quick thinking. One of the things I learned when I went to drama school, we had this ridiculous exercise you used to do every day where you'd have somebody sitting in front of you, somebody sitting behind you and two people either side mm -hmm. and they all ask you different questions. So one would do basic kind of, you've got a maths questions. Yeah. One would ask you, you know, about yourself. One would ask you about politics and I don't know, whatever. And you had to answer them simultaneously. And I, I did this. I know. And, and I've spoken to other people about this because they still do this as a drama exercise. 
Now, one of the benefits of this is it means that I think like you, you can be very quick thinking. Mm. One of the reasons I love doing interviews, I love doing an Oyster Catchers or a Let's Reset event where I'm talking to to, to a number of people is I love making those connections and yeah. linking it together. I love listening to the audience reaction. Um, the, the downside of it is when I'm in a big room of lots of people, I can hear every conversation that's going on. So at lunch, oh. I can always hear what's happening on the table next to me. And it's unbelievably annoying. Cause I'd yeah, like, I could, I could imagine that. Yeah. And so my kids think it's hilarious but um, actually, I find it really annoying now, and I, I do not do it. So, and I, and I wonder whether you know whether actually you can. There's uh, there's bits of it that you'd quite like to switch off. Yeah, I, it's interesting. I think I find it really hard to talk about that. So, um, I find improvisation fascinating. I think improvisation is really, really good. And there's a fascinating. You ever come across Rob Poynton? in your yes. travels yeah right he's amazing on yes. so many levels just just as a human but as somebody like he's just an amazing brain to be around yes. so he um he got involved i one of the things i'm proudest of in my career i worked on the first eight years of just eight so we went from we were looking for vc backing to mm. one of the most successful floats in mm. the uk uh, and that was just an amazing period of my career it's really good but rob came in as a consultant when they were looking to change their branding um, and we did a lot of workshops with Rob and I got on very well with him and he used to invite me down to um, he often used Deep because he's very close with Deep Big Fish he used their space in, in Bermondsey and what they do is he'd do a lot of his um, idea generation techniques but they were very very informed by improvisational theatre him right. and his business partner Lizzie they did a lot of these, these amazing um, improvisational stuff and I got really interested particularly with the comedy side so I went to some training courses on improvisation and I really really struggled because, like you said, you had that listening there. You can hear things. My brain is is predisposed to try and get to a punchline. Right. Always try and get to a punchline. Yeah. Yeah. And in improvisation, that is literally the they, they're like that's the worst thing you can do. Because improvisation, the, the the main thing I could take out of the teaching was you have to play the scene as completely real. You have to completely invest yourself in this scene and play it as though it were real. And the comedy will reveal itself from the situation rather than you actively taking a punchline. You taking a punchline takes you and the audience out of it. And that was something I really struggled to train my brain on. But yeah, I have that. Everything's a punchline. And it's sometimes you want to turn that off when you're trying to be more serious and your brain goes, I've got a good one. This one's really funny. Yeah, yeah, please, yeah, please be quiet. I'm trying to be, <laughs> I'm trying to be serious as I do this. It's interesting. The improvisation from spending time with Rob and, and just listening to it. There's loads of stuff when we do, I'm really love idea generation. And I think it was Rob really instilled that love of it in me. Um, so when we're doing a workshop, um, I, the main game, it's one of the first things you learn doing improvisation training is the yes and game. Because they know if you're doing an improvised scene, and you go, hey, look, we're in this submarine. And the other person goes, no, we're not. The whole thing is off the rails and ruined before you get out of the gates. So the thing they teach you is to be accepting of other people's ideas. So they play the yes and game. So how you do it is you have to play back the sentence the person just said, add an and, and build on it. So if you'd gone, hey, we're on the submarine. Yes, we are on a submarine. What's Elton John doing here? Yes, Elton John is here. But why has he brought a picnic camper? He's brought a picnic camper, but it's full of Smarties. Yes, it's full of smoke. And you just, the thing starts to explode an envelope. And if you have that in idea generation, it teaches people. The worst thing you have in an idea generation is when it goes, no, I can't do that. No, it's not going to work. And it just kills the whole thing. So A, you're trying to 
I guess the emceeing side of my brain will try and police the person out in the room and just find a way of just trying to just pivot them and bring them in and sort of say, look, it's knowing your brain at the minute, but what has to change about it to make it a yes? And it may be pretty fundamental, those changes, but still you could get to something that's a bit different that's a yes if you just stop yourself saying no. And you use that yes and as a way of encouraging people to, to take things on board and start to grow ideas. So that has been real, really helpful in terms of where comedy comes brilliant. into my world. Do you know, that's an absolutely brilliant insight. It's fascinating, isn't it? Um, you know, and like you, over the years, I've worked with lots of people, but also, you know, I've sat with lots of pitches over the years. And, and now in that three set where we're talking to people who don't do yes and and actually I haven't thought about it that way you know we're talking about how can you think about your whole self and link you know the broadest sense of well-being to increase performance and it is the people that sit there and go uh, we don't do this you know I'm not going to talk about stuff that impacts me personally I don't want to talk about uh you know whether my sense of purpose makes a difference to my life whether I, if i feel secure or not that's not relevant i'm going to keep that to myself and therefore it closes them down as a human being yeah and you just actually you uh, it's, a, it's a brilliant idea because i think if we could get people to go yes and this is why that would be really helpful and i think and i can completely see it in oh an idea generation yeah really smart but there's, uh, I guess that opens up another link between the two, which is putting people at ease. Because that's the thing in comedy clubs, people get really scared and really turned down. I'll tell you, it's slightly disgusting, but it's it's an interesting story. Um, I uh, have an interesting claim of fame in my comedy career. So I, I worked out, I did about 950 gigs in my you know, so so a decent, a decent, I've got a decent body of work to talk from. Or expertise you do. To talk from. Um, I have an interesting claim to fame in that, um, you know, the, the phrase, I've wet myself laughing. Is, is, is a phrase in a sandwich. I have the dubious kind of fame. I made a gentleman soil himself laughing, um, which is, I'm sorry if people are eating their breakfast and listening to this. <laughs> how, we, how we found this out is that um, I'd been on, and the headline had been on, it was this lovely, it was a little village outside Milton Keynes. It was a pub called The Bull or something. It was, it was a really fun night. It's one of the few bits of stand-up of me that's on YouTube. And it's really weird. They had really odd lighting in that they almost had desk lamps on the lip of the stage. So it's all like up lighting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It just looked yeah. really, it looked you, really odd. And you look really white. I've seen yeah. you in that. Yes. Yeah, it looked really white. And also because of my bald head, yeah. I just reflect light anyway. I didn't even have yeah. the beard then, so there's even less light dampening going on. Um, so I'd done my set, and there's an amazing comic called Kate Smurthwaite was headlining. And we come off, we're just chatting at the end, and the venue's like, oh, we had a nightmare. I said, what, we had a flood? Why did you had a flood? And the person who told themselves had put the soiled appendage in a cistern as a way of hiding it, and it caused a flood. Just, just grim on every level, right? Anyway, that's the aside. Kate found this hilarious, and Kate's an amazing compare. But she, she went through this period for about two months after of always introducing him. This next guy so funny, he made a guy soil himself. Ladies and gentlemen, Rick Moore, and I come on stage. And you'd think people would go, this person's clearly hilarious because he possesses that power. It didn't. It had the opposite effect. I went on. I went, why is the audience always being weird? And I realized, basically, if somebody's just told you, this person's so funny that it might make you sort yourself, you suddenly go into the field, I might do that. So you've got an entire room full of people <laughs> clenching and just looking at you in abject fear, just going, please go away. I don't want this to happen to me. And it's, uh, yeah, it's just an odd one sort of why it would just it would just put people off so badly yeah. so how you how you set people up and you, so that's a great example of how do you put people at ease so in an in an idea generation session in a stand-up gig both those things 
how do I put you at ease as quickly as possible? So, I mean, in the stand-up, I would say, look, I'm not going to pick on you. If I talk to you, I want to know you. And this is something you talked about it with your love of storytelling. I think because, just check if I'm right with this theory. If you love storytelling, you love stories from other people. You get that with this podcast. You get that. Um, go to the good Gary Laysman's because it's top of mind. He was talking about your friend Neshi, the cricketer, Neshi, yeah, and yeah. getting his story and pulling that out and yeah, pulling yeah. and pulling that side and the pride he felt, also the, the telling of the stories. I love a documentary. I love I love finding out the, what the background. I love pulling the curtain. Why did that happen? Why did these things happen? When I used to do the comparing, I wanted to chat to the crowd, not because I want to pick on them. I want to make sure you have the best night. I'm not going to have a best night if I insult you or make you feel rubbish or spoil the damage you group. Yeah. But I'm just curious about people. Where did you come from? What's what's led you to be sat in this room tonight? Why are you here? What's going on? Let's have a little chat. We might find something that's really interesting that's bespoke to this room we can we can use and could be a theme yeah. of the whole night. You know, what do you do for a living? Where do you come from? Those sorts of things. Um, and it's the same in ideas generation. Again, it's reading the room. And reading the room is, again, a theme you always come back to. But if you go in and it's, okay, we're going to do something, you can be really flamboyant in idea generation. Like I say, you can do the Rob thing and do these amazing improvises. An example of a Rob game would be spend some time crafting your own hand puppet and then explain your problem to the hand puppet. Now, that is quite out there. That's really, really big. Or there was one he did which was film genres, re-express the problem you're trying to answer in the style of a film genre. I remember it because we were working on, um, as an example, it had been... (laughs) Somebody there was talking about they were in Oxford. Their offices were in Oxford because you can't build in central Oxford because there's so many grade two listed buildings. You have to move to the outskirts. And their workforce were kind of against this because they can walk to the shopping centre. And M&S is only a five-minute walk at M&S Sandwiches. So so we're going to reappraise that problem through the style of a sci-fi movie. Uh, they started doing it. Well, we've got to move to a different planet, but this planet doesn't have an MS. And it's just, it's, it's a really, you could see some marketing directors, some marketeers going in that room going, hang on, I've given up a day of work for this. This is drivel. This is child. What is this? You know, they just shut down. And it's yeah. like, right, I've spent all the time to get you in the room. I'm going to lose you. So a lot of the, my spiel when I'm doing an um, idea generation at the top, I'll say, right, just before we go into this, I want you all to relax. I personally hate enforced fun. It makes me uncomfortable. I don't want to make you feel uncomfortable. There'll be no exercise. You'll not have to stand up and pretend you're growing like a tree. That's, and you can just see people just go, ah. You can see it in their shoulders and their body language. They just unlock. It was yeah. the same in the stand-up. They just unlock. You go, okay, great. Now yeah. you can get into enjoying it and, and getting something useful out of this rather than sitting there going, oh, no. But yes, that introduction, having a whole hundred people just sitting there clenching, going, please don't make me sore myself because yeah, no, that will ruin a night. No, it's a bit like um, you know, the, the, what I find. And actually, I've learned to the I, – even though I went to drama school, I used to get terribly nervous before I went on stage. Didn't really matter how many people. It could be five people. It could be a thousand people. The level of nerves are about the same. So I did that thing a number of years ago of going psychologically and physiologically. What happens in my body is exactly the same if I feel hugely excited as if I feel really nervous. So I retrain my brain to go, you're not really nervous. You're really excited. And it made everything so much more enjoyable. But mostly it made my guests much happier, much more relaxed made me more relaxed, made everyone around me more relaxed. And it's quite interesting. Um, Steve Parrish, the chief chairman of Crystal Palace Football Club. Oh, yeah. I've interviewed a number of times. We've done a podcast together, but I was interviewing him a couple of weeks ago. And the same thing happens with Steve every time, which is, you know, the briefing he's usually, we usually have to move a couple of times. Um, It's then, you know, when it's me interviewing him, it's always the same thing. It's not a massive football thing. It's usually to do with the business, to do with the academy or whatever. 
Um, he's then absolutely fine. Then just before when he arrives, he's super nervous. He makes everyone nervous. So I arrive at this event and they go, oh, Steve doesn't say, says you haven't been briefed. He doesn't know what you're talking about. I'm like, guys, let's really calm down. He knows exactly what he's going to talk about. We've agreed the questions. We've got 45 minute slot. It's absolutely fine. I know I'm going to talk to him about. And I'm like, Steve, don't do this. We're absolutely fine. Anyway, he goes on stage, literally smashes it because he's brilliant, smart, mm. hilarious. But he does the same thing every time. And I'm like, Steve, why don't you just calm down? He said, well, I, I and he doesn't even think he does it, but he just does. But he makes everyone, I've now worked out, he makes everyone around him super nervous. Yeah, that's that's weird. But I can totally relate to that. I, I have a sort of what I would call getting in the zone, which is about... Right. 10 to 15 minutes beforehand. So first thing was just a quick comfort break. Check your fine there. Have a drink available to you. Um, uh, just I, I love having a pint glass or a bottle of beer as a prop. It's slightly tricky. I haven't done a gig. I sort of, I'm on a pause from drinking. I'm not dry. I'm not going to stop, but I'm sort of on a pause since last September. Little baby and everything. It's not worth yeah. having a hangover. Um, so, uh, but I love, so when I have that available and then I get in this, it's really interesting. It's very linked to what you just said. It, I have almost the adrenaline and it's the adrenaline and the nerves are entwined with each other. Yes. And I need that adrenaline. But I've, I've, yeah, it's like you said, retraining the brain. That's a lovely way of describing it. I've turned the nerves into, oh, I'm waiting for you, friend. This is my launch pad. Yeah. That's the adrenaline going. And then I'm up there. And then you generally, you get hit in the face with the lights. You can't really see anything. No. And you just want to get to, that's one of the biggest things, which is, it's just giving yourself permission to take the time and breathe. Like you could get up there and if the nerves are in the way your body moves, you're just going to broadcast that to the room that you're nervous. So for me, part of the reason for having the drink is I want to take my time to find a place to put that drink safely. And if you look like you belong up there and you're comfortable and you're comfortable taking your time up there, people just go, oh, this person's meant to be there. That's fine. They're meant to be there. Take the microphone. The worst I ever had, I'd fallen over and I'd broken um, this uh, metacorporal button. It's um, the middle finger. I'd snapped that bone in the back of my hand just falling over. And I had to wear a splint for a few weeks. And, but I was still gigging. So I used to, um, if I could wedge the pint glass between my thumb and the splint, I could carry that. And I had this single hand to get the mic. And this one particular night, I'd sort of, if you put your foot on the base of the mic stand, you can pull the mic free and then you've got your, you put your pint down, you can talk. And what I managed to do on this particular gig is I managed to somehow get my foot on the wire of the microphone. So as I pulled the microphone, I pulled the cable from the handset and it fell down. I'm stood there holding this unconnected microphone with a pint glass in this broken hand. Really? If that's a master like Tommy Cooper, one of the all-time greats, that's the whole set and his whole shtick. But you sort of let in that you know he's meant to be doing that. If you start a show by doing what I did, you just look like you're a clumsy idiot. <laughs> and the audience, the audience just go, yeah, we don't not invest in this guy at all. No, he's not. Fun. He's just a fool. <laughs> he doesn't belong to be, you know. Exactly. So it's so so how you exude that, how you turn that yeah. adrenaline into, you get up there and you turn it into something. Yeah. That's it, it's how do you exude that calm that I am meant to be here? Yeah. Before you even say a word, you've probably won them or lost them. Yeah, I agree, and I think you know um, when I see agencies pitching to clients when. We now spend lots of time doing workshops with Let's Reset with groups and leaders, particularly. Mm. And you, you're getting leaders to talk about their stories and being vulnerable. Actually thinking about the environment that they're doing it in, 
the way for the setup. So, you know, I say, even though I now do the, look, I've, I feel excited. I don't feel something else. So even when I'm doing, you know, big speaking events, um, or actually important presentations, I know that I need to spend time beforehand on my own. And I do that kind of classic. So I go and have my hair done. Not because I particularly need my hair done, Mm -hmm. but it gives me that moment in time. And because like we talked about before, I'm either with a team presenting or I'm with some guests before we're doing an interview. I now count that bit as my performance time, not my preparation time. So I have to be prepared before I walk in that room to then go from then. And and I see a lot when you see teams pitching, those teams that have spent that time together and feel like one, you know, that have really worked on all the aspects about, you know, are they going to drink water? Have they got that? Have they have they sorted out all the stuff that means when the clients come in, when you're being listened to, everyone else is relaxed. They're not worrying that either you look really nervous or that you're faffing around with water, with tech, with food. It's unbelievably annoying. And it gets the whole thing off to the wrong way, the wrong yeah. spot. It puts the wrong feeling in the room. And that really resonates. And that, again, good MCs on comedy gigs, again, this is where you take your ego out of it slightly. Your job is not to get yourself over. Your job is to create the atmosphere where the act is coming on with the best possible chance of success. I mean, and I've, I've had it, I had one, I remember there's an amazing comedian called Marlon Davis. He's so funny. He's he, the guy's just pure electricity and he's hilarious. And he did a gig in Camden and he went on and did 10 minutes and just the phrase tore the room apart. He was just on absolutely on fire. And the compare came up and went, wow, so good. You listen next to that Rick Moore. And you, you, already you're set up to fail because he, the crowd almost need time to reset. So, you know, good comparing. What you would do is you recognize that person stormed it. Just tell a bit of padding to chat a little bit, pad it out a little bit, let people get their breath back. Just get, I mean, it doesn't need to be any more than one to two minutes, but just have them a little bit of reset and then just start to build the energy, the excitement back up and then bring the next person. You want to, you want to, a good compare creates a ramp. You can bring person on. A slightly weird side from the comedy, I started doing weddings. I did a period where I did about a dozen weddings over a couple of years as a wedding yeah. MC. Yeah. So what you basically do is you announce the happy couple into the room, but then you stand up ahead of the speeches and you basically MC the speeches. And well, this, is, this is great. A, you set the room and you calm everybody down. It makes the person probably the most nervous is probably the father of the bride because they're usually the first up and they usually have to go up to a cold room and people are expecting jokes and whatnot. But yeah. if you can go up and you can um, you can set it so that they come up and they, oh, I feel relaxed and people seem to be happy and welcome and, you know, they feel great about themselves, they give a better speech, it's a better time. And I think taking that back to the pitch environment, if I, particularly if I've got junior members of the team in, they're vital. How many times are you in a pitch where they go, we don't want to have senior people, we want to meet the people day in, day out, are going to be, so we want to meet the team. And so you've got to listen to that and you can't hit your, say, what you might call your pitch A team or your senior people who've been there lots of times before. It's just not credible. I'm a client. I'm not going to buy that because I'm, I'm not there. So you need your people in the room. And the fact they're in the room, know they're good. You know, we're very lucky here at the club. Actually, we've got some really brilliant talent, really lovely people. And we, we, we're very open about people's probably most important thing we've got. But I, I deliberately take the time out of them to explain to them why they're in the room and remind them why they're in the room and you're that good for being there. 
And then beforehand, it's just a little bit of that affirmation or it's just cracking some jokes. It's just something that they just, just poor people. By the way, cracking jokes at work. The watch out I always have in my head is that David Brent quote, chill, I'm just a chilled out entertainer. That's the anathema. If you go anywhere near that, avoid that like the plague. I know anybody listening to this thinking that's the kind of working environment I encourage. But I think there's a way of just, just popping the bubble of the nervousness and just, just taking that sting out of it so people feel... Because if they're relaxed, they're going to do their best work. Absolutely. Absolutely. So that's really important. Yeah. My previous business partner, Peter Cowie, was the best in the world at that. Just amazing. Yeah. Look, Rick, it's been such a joy to talk to you. We, yeah. I can't believe we've spoken for so long. Um, it's, it's, well, I hope the listeners don't feel the same way. No, no. <laughs> I meant there's so many more things I'd like to talk to you about, but we, yeah. we really have run out of time. Um, you know, so lovely to talk to you. Good yeah. luck with both your children thank um, you very much I'm glad you are still doing a few gigs a year yeah time for it just so i think just one final comment is how do you still make time for that look you know you're you're running helping running an agency you're married you've got two kids yeah how and why do you make time um i make time in different different ways um it's something that can always just like i said i don't get i'm not doing 160 gigs a year i do maybe two or three if that in a year right. if i know they're coming up i'll maybe pocket bits of material little bits of ideas go that's interesting because i'm generally doing two to three what i'll do now is i'll write things bespoke to that particular gig so again it makes it feel very particular but it, it shapes it that way I, i'm very like i talked about my amazing wife my wife is a children's author um which is really cool so she's often writing and one of the one of the ways I get to sort of scratch that creative itch is if she say she's writing, she'll just say, oh, "I've got this. Could we make this funnier? Could we put a gag in here? Is there something?" And we'll just riff an idea. So she's got um, her debut children. Uh, she's mainly writes for nine to twelve. She had five books out for nine to twelves, um, but she's just had her first picture book came out last week. It's called Oh Armadillo. Uh, this part is all wrong. Small plug. It's on Quarto Books. Please oh, go buy it. we'll do a link to that. Brilliant. Um, no, it's 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 brilliant. But but just watching her go through her writing process and. You say, oh, here's an idea for a gag. And when watching her run, I find that collaboration really well with my old um, comedy partner. You know, because most of my gigs were just straight to solo stand-up. We did this sketch thing called the 80s movie Flashback, which is great fun. That's where um, Jonathan Fraser, the CSO over at Troublemaker, is my comedy partner. But I love just coming up with an idea and watching them riff and coming back. I think taking that to advertising, the best thing I ever got taught is um, you can't solve everything on your own. And riffing and kicking an idea back and forth, you can get some really exciting places. And, and I feel that in both professionally and work. So now in my private time, it's, it, it, it's um, it, getting that creative itch, um, either storing my own writing stuff, um, collaborating with Ellie on some of her ideas, or just other bits of creative, finding any sort of creativity in life. I, I dabble at painting. Um, I, in lockdown, I bought a bass guitar. And I'm terrible. And I will never stand in a room and play in front of people. But I love music. And the fact that I can now in a very terrible and very rudimentary way, pick through something. And I, well, I know what that's meant to be. And that's come from me. That, that makes me feel really good. So it's just, you need to find that space, particularly as a strategist. You need to find that space, that external, that sponginess to bring in because it will inform everything else you do. So that's how I, I make time for it because I, I quantify that it's part of my process and part of my job and it helps me do that. Brilliant. Well, Rick, thank you so much. Thanks for sharing so much of your story. That was absolutely fascinating and some lovely parallels. And I'm sure loads of people listening will get lots out of that as well. And even if it just inspires them to discover something new, have a creative outlet just for a moment, it will make a difference in their lives. So thank you so much. No, thank you for having me. I've really enjoyed chatting to you. 
for listening. If you've enjoyed Reset the Podcast, I'd love it if you would forward it to your work colleagues, friends and family. Reset the Podcast is a Let's Reset and Advertising Week global production. Executive producer is Richard Larson, with me, Suki Thompson. Thanks to our sponsor, Liars Non-Alcoholic Spirits and voiceover artist, Talitha Penny. Music provided by Audio Network.